This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining me here today. Well, I am so excited to bring you today's guest. It is Dr. Kevin Vost. Now, Dr. Vost is the author of the book, Memorize the Faith. And in Memorize the Faith, he lays out for us some ancient and medieval memory techniques that people have used for a very long time to memorize information. It's really fascinating. The conversation we had focuses on memory in general and how it works, but also these kind of fun and different techniques you could use to help your kids memorize or even memorize things yourself. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode of the podcast. Kevin Vost holds a doctorate in psychology from the Adler School of Professional Psychology in Chicago and has taught both psychology and gerontology at the college level. He is the author of numerous books on subjects ranging from philosophy to apologetics and even physical fitness, and he has a special research interest in memory and memory strategies. In his book, Memorize the Faith, Dr. Vost explains how to use the memory method taught by Thomas Aquinas more than seven centuries ago, to memorize almost anything, including important truths of the church. He joins us on this episode to discuss how memory strategies can be applied in morning time. Dr. Vost, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Pam. Well, in an age where information can be accessed so quickly and easily, why do you think it's important to memorize? Okay, that's a great question. And there's been a variation of that question around for actually over 2,000 years. If I could explain, in one of Plato's dialogues, Socrates tells a story of a king of ancient Egypt, and a person comes up to him and presents this new invention. And this new invention was the art of writing. And the king was concerned that if we had this ability to write things down, our memories would deteriorate. Now, we would lose our capacity to memory for memorization. Now, of course, that didn't really happen, you know, so many years ago. But now it's like this question is back at us in a way like never before. In our age, when information can be accessed so quickly, you know, of course, now we have the internet. You can get almost any kind of information almost instantly. Yes. So why would we want to still have this capacity to memorize? And I would argue that it's still very, very important to memorize because though the internet is a wonderful tool to get at information, there can be a world of difference between information you can just access and knowledge that you actually possess within your own mind. If I can give a real extreme example here, just think, you know, if you had to undergo a surgery, a medical surgery, you know, who would you rather have operated on you? The world's greatest IT expert, you know, who can look up any medical information in a fraction of a second, or maybe a trained medical surgeon who doesn't know everything about medicine, but he has a lot of that knowledge inside his own head. So I would say in our time, there's a big difference between being able to, to get it information and actually knowing it. When you actually know it, it builds your knowledge base. And we learn and understand new things based partly on what we've already learned, what's familiar to us. And if you train your memory, you grow your knowledge base, it becomes much more easy to pick up new information and to learn it deeply and to hold on to it. So for the things that are really most important in your life, it is important to actually have the capacity to memorize. Oh, that's such a great answer. I mean, the analogy you give there (laughs) really kind of drives it home. Well, do you think there's virtue in the practice of memorization? Yes, you know, and I'll say in two ways. 
the topic we just talked about, you know, in our information age, you know, one of the, the great blessings is we can access so much vital information. I mean, the internet searches are a godsend to me, but also that we become at risk of being overly distracted. You know, our attention is just pulled this way and that by all the links and all the information out there. So there's an ancient distinction in terms of virtue and vice that St. Thomas Aquinas talked about. He talked about a vice of curiosity, which meant being distracted and focusing on things that don't matter versus a virtue of studiousness, being able to focus over time on the things that truly matter. So training ourselves to memorize really does help that virtue of studiousness. But there's also another link there that St. Thomas and St. Albert the Great, his teacher, wrote about. When they wrote about the practice of memorization and how to improve your memory, they did it in the context of describing the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom. Because they said to achieve virtuous goals in the future, we're going to act now in the present, guided by the lessons we've learned in the past. So they said, in some ways, memory is the most important aspect of practical wisdom. Because, you know, our past memories guide our future behaviors and not vice versa. So, so I would say there's a, a very important links in the memory capacity between that virtue of being studious and also prudence, practical wisdom. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. How the memories that we have drive what we will do in the future. Yeah, I never thought that's about right. it like that. That's what we learned about our faith, the experiences, yeah. you know, that we've had over our lifetimes. Yeah, those help guide how we're going to act in the future. Well, how did you first become interested in memory? Well, it's interesting. It was, uh, you know, supposedly by chance, I just went to our local Lincoln Library's annual book sale where they sell books that people don't read anymore. And I invested about a quarter in this slim little book on memorization. It was the best investment I ever made. This slim little book gave some basic memory techniques. I can use these practical techniques. It didn't really give the history or background. It just said, here, here's how these work. Here's how you can use them. And I did it. I used it. I discovered this in my late teens. It made the rest of my schooling for my college degrees, bachelor's, master's, my psychology license. It made them almost a piece of cake when it came to terms of memorization because I found these were so useful for me that when I did my own master's thesis in psychology, I decided I would do that on the actual scientific research on how our children's memories aided when they're taught specialized memory techniques. And then later, my doctoral work was at an Alzheimer's center. And I worked with people with uh, various kinds of brain damage. And we studied memory, how it's lost in Alzheimer's disease, uh, what happens to memory through the process of normal aging, through our research on volunteers, including sisters of several religious orders. Also, I had the opportunity to work with some patients with brain damage and help teach them these memory techniques. And with certain patients, we had, you know, really uh, some impressive results. So over the, since I was in my late teens, so what's that now? You know, over 30, 35 years or more now. I've been really involved in these memory techniques in one way or another. Okay, so you would be the perfect person to tell us, in layman's terms, exactly how memory works. Okay, yeah. In memory, you know, it's a very grand thing. There's different kinds of memory. You know, we may hear visual memory versus verbal memory, short-term, long-term, and so forth. But to break it down, kind of down to the basics, we often distinguish between short-term memory and long-term memory. Short-term memory is also sometimes called working memory. And it's basically, you know, what can you hold in your focused awareness at one point in time. And the value that's usually given is seven plus or minus two. We can usually hold right on to about seven pieces of information. And some of us a little bit better memories may go up to around nine or so. Some of us a little bit weaker memories that more be maybe more like five. And some of the research on this was actually the basis for uh, the creation of telephone numbers in the 1950s. 
know that most numbers not including the area code have seven digits because most people can hold that. You know, they hear that one time, if they're really focused, they can hold that. So our memory kind of starts with this sort of a filter, the short-term memory, a working memory. It holds about seven things, maybe at once. But the things that we focus on, the things that are important or that we repeat to ourselves may then move into the stores of long-term memory, which for practical purposes are almost limitless. You know, if we think about through our lives, all the amazing number of things that we can remember. So if we take in the time, use the focus to move things into that long-term memory, it's almost limitless. And as an aside, typically with dimensions like Alzheimer's disease, the brain structures that are involved in moving that information from the short-term memory to the long-term memory tend to be the ones that are damaged most. That's why they have these problems retaining new information, memories of new things that happened to them, though they may be able to tell you things that happened to them long, long ago, earlier on in their lives. Oh, that's so interesting that that's kind of where everything breaks down in people who are suffering from those afflictions. Yes, the brain structures, the hippocampus and the temporal lobe of the brain on the sides of the brain seems very crucial in forming these new memories. But now, but once we have those long-term memories, they seem to be more dispersed throughout the brain and they're much more resilient, much less likely to be lost. Interesting. Well, and you told us that the capacity of human memory is the long-term memory is pretty much limitless. So how much of memorization is discipline and how much is natural ability? Yeah, that's a great distinction. Uh, the, the early people who wrote about these memory techniques, ancient Greeks and Romans, often distinguished between what they called natural memory and artificial memory. Natural memory is just how we remember things by nature. Artificial is when we use an art or specialized techniques. And some people will, by nature, have very good memories, you know, some stronger than others. But with these artificial techniques, you know, we can greatly expand our capacities there. When I used to teach college courses, one little demo I would do for my students would be in a couple of minutes, I would memorize a 50-digit number for them that they would generate. In fact, we'd all try to do this. But I would memorize this 50-digit number and then also give it back to them backwards and they could call out any number between 1 and 50, you know, say 38. And I would tell them what that number is because when you use these artificial memory techniques, you're kind of using your reasoning abilities to exceed the limits of normal natural memory. But being blessed with as human beings, with intellectual souls, with the ability to reason, we can greatly enhance even our memory abilities. And I'll say one other thing on this regard because I find it very interesting. At times, they've done research on people who have naturally very powerful memories comparing them to people who have trained their memories in advanced specialized techniques. And typically, the people with more normal memories who have been trained in the techniques do outperform the people with naturally powerful memories. Oh, that is interesting. So you're saying that you're using reasoning skills to improve your memory technique. And I know that one of kind of the tensions sometimes in the educational world is, well, we shouldn't spend all of our time memorizing. We should spend our time doing critical thinking or reasoning. But really, you're saying that you're strengthening both when you're using these memory techniques because you're using these reasoning skills to remember more. Yes, there was a Russian developmental psychologist kind of summed this up in a pithy way. He said, for the child, for the young child, to think is to remember. When you ask an opinion, they're going to maybe regurgitate what they've learned from someone older. But for the adolescents, adolescent to remember is to think. By the time we reach our teenage years, we have those abilities where we can kind of harness our own abilities and remember and think better. Yes, by using those reasoning skills. Now, I will say sometimes memory has you know gotten a wrap and maybe sometimes deservedly so. 
But when we stick to what's called rote memorization, where you can just parrot back words without comprehending the meaning behind them. So these techniques, though, they're not there. That's not what they are. You're memorizing key words so then you can ponder them and think deeply about important meanings. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But first, I think what I want you to do is, can you describe for the audience the method for memorizing that you talk about in Memorize the, memorize the Faith? What are the historical roots of this and how does it work? Sure. I've also found this fascinating. Discovered by the ancient Greeks around the 5th century BC by this orator named Simonides, it was passed on to the West through the writings of Marcus Tullius, Tullius Cicero, a great Roman who lived in the time of Julius Caesar. It had a history of being used by public speakers. You know, I'll just mention today, I use it myself for public speaking. It allows you to, to memorize the key points of any talk you want to make and to have them in, in their exact order. So we had these methods that were used for public speaking uh, that were based on the use of visual imagery, things that we can see, particularly if they're in a certain arrangement, or even just imagine that we've seen in a particular arrangement, are much more memorable. So the technique is often called the method of loci or locations, where you build this imaginary system like a memory house within your head. And then anything you want to remember, you convert into images. And maybe I'll give a demo in just a minute to, to show how that's done. But I will say, St. Thomas Aquinas actually played a big role in the history of these techniques in the 13th century. And right smack dab in the middle of his Summa Theologica, he actually talks about these techniques. And he says there are four main things that a, that a person does to perfect their memory. And two of these we already know. If you really want to remember something, you're going to repeat it, you know, rehearse it. Also, you're going to focus or pay attention. But these two additional elements to this memory technique are we create an image, something we can picture, even if the information that we're trying to remember is something spiritual or abstract. And then also we have an ordering or organization system. And that's what we do in the memory mansion, the memory house that I use in the book, Memorize the Faith. Okay. And so could you walk us through kind of a brief or simple example of this step-by-step of how this would work? Sure. I'll give you something brief here and we'll see if we have time to elaborate. So here, we're actually going to demonstrate this method. First, I'm not going to tell the listeners what it is that we're memorizing, but maybe they can figure it out. So I want you to imagine that you're visiting me in central Illinois, coming to my house. It's a ranch house surrounded by mature maples and oaks. You knock on my front door. That's location number one, the first location. The door opens and you are blinded by this blinding light, and you hear this horrible resounding crash. Okay, so do we have that? Number one, the front door opens, this brilliant light, we hear a crash. Now, number two, you take a step inside my house on the doormat, and this is the most unusual doormat you have ever come across, because it's actually speaking to you. Not only is it speaking, but, it, but it's cursing, it's cussing, so much that you kind of put your feet over its mouth to muffle it. You know, how strange. You have this cursing doormat there in the second location. Now, I'll go through five locations. A third, you're imagining you're still standing there in my entranceway. Now you look at this glass panel next to the front door and you see out into my front yard. And you say, wow, that is just like the most beautiful day I've ever seen out there. So just imagine the scene of this glorious day out in the front yard. Okay, two more. You're back in the foyer. On the wall next to that front door is a portrait there. And you're shocked to see within my house, it's a portrait of your own parents. And you imagine that, your parents. And what's Dr. DeVos doing with these in his house? But there they are. Fourth location, the portrait of your parents. We'll do just one more. The fifth location now, you're still in the foyer. And on another adjoining wall is a gun rack. And the gun rack has a giant padlock on it. So there's our fifth image, the gun rack with a padlock. Now, 
These memory methods are designed to help you learn things in order, literally backwards and forwards. And if we recall that repetition is also a key component, in fact, it's called the mother of memory. Let me go one more time in reverse real quickly, okay? That fifth location was the padlocked gun rack on the wall. The fourth location on the wall next to the door was the portrait of your own parents. The third location was our view through the glass panel out in the front yard, the most glorious day we've ever seen. The second location was that strange image of the doormat that was cursing. And the first location was the front door we opened. We saw this great light and heard this resounding crash. Okay, you know, so, so what was all that? When I was young, my mom used to say, if I said something unusual or outlandish, she said, you know, what did that have to do with the price of beans? Because <laughs> we live in soybean and corn country here. You know, but I say, you know, it's a fair enough question. What do we really memorize with that si simple little example? Well, what's our first image? The front door, the great light, the crash. That's just a simple reminder for the first commandment, you know, to honor God alone. And that bright light is just going to be our symbol for the great, you know, likeness of God. That crash we threw in was the fall of strange gods, false idols. Okay, so that first silly image was just a reminder of the first commandment. I think listeners will find the second one even more direct. The cursing doormat, okay? It's, it's cursing. The simple reminder of the second commandment, not to use the Lord's name in vain. And we see all these have the simple connections like this. We're taking something profound and using a striking image to remember it. The third location was the scene out in the front yard, the glorious day. Pretty straightforward reminder to honor the Lord's day. You know, the Sabbath day and then the Lord's day. I think the fourth will be maybe the easiest of them all. The portrait of your own parents was there at the fourth location to remind us of the fourth commandment, which is, you know, to honor our fathers and mothers. And finally, that fifth location, probably another fairly easy one. We had the, the gun rack there with a huge padlock on it, to remind us of the fifth commandment, which is, of course, thou shalt not kill. So in a system like that, in the first chapter of Memories of Faith, I go through 10 locations in that foyer, you know, five more spots, each one with a very simple reminder of what these commandments are. And they can be so simple, for example, that the image for the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal, is up in a chandelier. We just imagine that it's made out of solid steel. So just a sound-alike word even is enough to trigger the meaning. So that's one simple example of how we could use this easy technique to memorize something as important as the Ten Commandments and to know them in order literally backwards and forwards after just a few minutes. Right, because once you have those visual images in your mind, you simply kind of walk back through the room in reverse order and you're able to say them backwards as well. That's right. So anything that's, you know, really worth remembering by doing them backwards is an advanced form of rehearsal. So you really, really know them well. You know, I've even had been invited at times to prepare a mission with the main goal of helping all the students there, the young children there, learn the Ten Commandments. And it's usually pretty effective. Sometimes if I, if I do these in demonstrations, I'll sometimes get hands raised out in the audience from young children to show that after we've done this full demo, that they can do it. So almost everyone has the capacity to do this if they put their mind to it. All right. And then when you're talking about repetition, you're actually talking about repetition of the technique, not necessarily repeating the Ten Commandments to yourself over and over again, but repeating, you know, walking through that room and pulling up those visual images again and again. That's the kind of repetition, right? That's right. You would practice that, but then each time, you know, that image is going to trigger what it actually means. Okay. And so if you're out somewhere, you're thinking about the Ten Commandments, if you can do that memory tour, you know the Ten Commandments themselves also. But yes, the more fluent you are with practicing, the more instant it will become, you know, for the Ten Commandments, and for anything else, because those locations, you know, the front door, the doormat, and so on, 
become like a mental notepad that once you know those well, you can use them again and again and again for different sets of information. You could even use them for things like, you know, your grocery list. You know, you open your front door and you're hit on the head by a giant banana or something, you know, and you go your way through there. But things that are not important, you know, you don't need the same memory list, I mean, a grocery list next week. The things that are not important, you won't repeat. Therefore, you'll lose those. But the location system itself, you'll keep. And things that are important, like, for example, the Ten Commandments, you're, you know, again and again, and you can keep them over long periods of time. Okay, so let me ask you a couple of practical questions about the technique. Can you fill this same memory location and you're using the location of your house and you actually use it throughout the entire book? You use several different rooms, but you use the same location a number of times to store different bits of information. Does the material ever get jumbled up? It it can. There's different kinds of memory interference, proactive and retroactive, where things you've learned before make it harder to learn new material and vice versa. So it's possible, you know, the more practice you do, the easier it is to keep them separate. Also, once you thoroughly learn something, they, they kind of hang together. The images trigger each other. Just for a real quick example, those same first five locations that we use for the Ten Commandments, later in the book, I imagine the front door opens and there's your friend Jennifer and her sister, because we were talking about Genesis. That doormat there says exit on it, to remind us of Exodus. Out in the front yard, you see this giant pair of Levi jeans, you know, for Leviticus. So we use the same locations, but different images. So once you thoroughly learn those chains and how they go together, like the other example I give you, the books of the Old Testament, it tends to be less confusing than you might think. But again, repetition is the mother of memory and practice makes perfect. The more you practice these techniques, the more fluent you'll become and the less likely you are to become confused by them. Okay. So what about coming up with a mental image for something that might not lend itself easily to this visual depiction? Now, you've already given me some really interesting examples because you just said Levi's for Leviticus. But have you ever found, has there ever been a piece of information where it's been really difficult to come up with an image to go with it? (laughs) That's a great question. I know in some of the ancient literature, it criticized this. One of the ancient authors says, well, you can't form images for things like conjunctions, like four. Well, well, sure you can. You picture a golfer saying four, you know, and that will remind you of that a different word for for a conjunction. But some things are hard. I remember going through Memorize the Faith. There was one of the sins against the Holy Spirit was final impenitence. We're unwilling to be penitent, to add for God's, to ask for God's forgiveness at the end of our life. How am I going to get an image for final impenitence? And I ended up with something that was a little bit strained. It was a funnel and ants and pens are coming through that funnel. So funnel in pens and ants, final impenitence. And it ended up the illustrator chose that as one of the images, one of the hundreds of images to illustrate because sometimes the ones that take more work and are more strained actually because of that extra effort become more memorable. So there's almost nothing that cannot be converted into a memory. Okay. And so you're working off of like similar sounding words. It doesn't have to be like a direct one-to-one correlation, kind of like with that steel chandelier. The commandments, thou shalt not steal, but we're using kind of a different version of the word to trigger that memory of it. That's right. And and a person using these techniques is you become proficient. You know, when I do the book, I use the things that kind of pop into my own head, but other people may have their own unique associations that are even more effective. So for one example, when I cover the seven deadly sins, for the sin of pride, you know, you're in my memory house. I say, well, imagine there's a a statue of me in my living, of myself. You know, my, my wife certainly wouldn't tolerate that. 
But if it was there, it'd probably be pretty prideful, right? So, so that could be a reminder for pride. But you could also imagine there's a pride of lions, or if you know the singer Charlie Pride, you know, or if you have some unique thing that reminds you of pride, you put there too, because it doesn't matter so much the image itself, as long as it serves as the trigger for the actual content and what you're trying to memorize. Okay, so you've talked about using this a lot with lists of information or bodies of information. Now, you also mentioned that you could use it as a public speaker. Have you ever used it for something like a poem or a piece of Shakespeare or something of that nature where, you know, poetry lends itself well to memorization through repetition of the verbal aspects because, you know, it has rhythm. It has a lot of it has rhymes, things of that nature. But could you use this for a poem or Shakespeare? Yes, you can. Now, interestingly, too, this has quite ancient history. The ancients used to distinguish between what they called memory for words and memory for things. And the things were like these ideas, concepts, commandments, and so forth, where the words would be the verbatim memorization. And it would be cumbersome to do this with every word in a passage. But for certain words, certain keywords, you know, you can line them up in the order they appear in the poem, and it can help a person who is having some problems memorizing. So my own recommendation would be, you know, do it the old fashioned way. Make sure you know the exact words. But if you find it's not working well, if you find you're getting stuck, then pull out these locations and set some of these key words there in key locations to help you remember what comes next. So they're very, very adaptable. But again, my own methods are like for public speaking, I would not recommend memorizing an entire talk this way. You know, you could possibly get lost and get tongue tied. It might sound artificial. What the public speakers do is lay out their key points. Now, like I do this myself. If I go do a new talk, I may have maybe 20 or 30 or 40 things I want to make sure to talk about in a certain order. So I'll lay out those key points in these locations. So I can almost literally deliver that talk backward, but I don't have all the words. So I'm still you know, free to speak naturally and spontaneously. So there's another use there uh, in public speaking. I'll also say too, it can also be used for information for things that, that work like in a system. To give a real simple example, when I used to teach adolescence, the psychology of adolescence, when I taught the biology of puberty, I used to use a very simple mnemonic to start, our memory aid to start. I had the class uh, picture a huge hypodermic needle, then a bottomless pit, and then an adding machine. So hypodermic needle and a bottomless pit and an adding machine. I'd put them in the locations. And what they'd find out later is they just memorized the components of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis because the hypodermic needle stood for the hypothalamus within the brain. The bottomless pit stood for the pituitary gland, and the adding machine stood for the adrenal glands. So we can also use these methods to learn things that operate in a system in fields like biology and in other fields. Oh, that's interesting. Now, some people might raise an objection that the mental images used in this technique are not necessarily connected to meaning, and they're like, might even be considered silly or bizarre. How do you answer that objection? Are you advocating memorization without understanding? Well, yeah, you know, absolutely not. And that objection, you know, does come up and it has through the history of these methods. But there's a strong history there saying why they need to be that way. When St. Thomas writes about these images, he uses the word miramer or things that are marvelous, that we marvel at, that are bizarre or unusual. Because we are inundated with so much information every day, the things are more routine, you know, kind of slip, go in one ear and out the other. It's the things that are unusual and striking that stick with us. So these memory images do focus on that. They're, because they're unusual, it's, they tend to be exaggerated or humorous or just surprising. Those do become more memorable. And also, these memory tours kind of relate to 
a story. You know, you're going through a tour, you're walking through this house, you're remembering these things. So you're taking information that's kind of road information and turning it into experiential information, like something you've actually lived through. And that also makes it more memorable. Now, so we're saying, you know, so the images themselves don't have to convey the meaning, but when we set them up, we want to make sure we do know the meanings and that they can trigger them for us in, in order. So if, you know, you're sitting somewhere where you don't have access to other information, you can go through your head, recall these images, and then start thinking deeply about the things that they represent. And another thing I say is when people are afraid is somehow contrary to understanding, four of the greatest exponents, you know, champions of these techniques have been four of the most brilliant people in history, including Aristotle, the father of logic, Cicero, the great Roman orator and consul, St. Albert the Great, the patron saint of scientists, wrote explicitly and extensively about these techniques, and also St. Thomas Aquinas, the patron saint of scholars. So you're not advocating that we use these techniques or teach these techniques to our children as kind of a parlor trick, but instead that they are able to internalize and carry these information in their head so they can pull it out on the rainy day, flip through it mentally, and actually contemplate on the truths that are kind of held there. Yeah, that's the exact the idea. And we also, through the book, I try to develop what's called meta memory, which is a more greater awareness of memory. And one of the components of meta memory can be when do I need to use these techniques and when don't I? So these are just going to be like, you know, one other arrow in your quiver of techniques. You're not necessarily going to use them for all the time because sometimes your natural memory would be totally adequate. But for certain things where you're having a difficulty or you have a vast amount of information, you need to know this, you know, very deeply and well, backwards and forwards then to have access to these techniques can be, you know, can make a really a really huge difference. So kind of an example of that would be, you know, you know the Nicene Creed because you repeat it each week in church. So that's not something you're going to need to use this particular kind of technique on. That comes from the verbal repetition, you know, as part of your life, as part of the liturgy. That's right. These techniques can supplement that kind of thing, you know, if you're first learning it, but that's not the primary goal. It's for things like information, like I gave in the Memorize of Faith, which would be things like, you know, the Ten Commandments, the order of all the books in the Bible, you know, the Rosary Mystery, the names of the virtues and deadly sins and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, things like that. I later wrote a book called Memorize the Reasons for Catholic Answers that uses this technique for apologetics, like for fundamental Catholic beliefs. You know, where do they come from? Where do we get this idea out of the Bible that there's something special about Peter and the Pope? So where does that come from the Bible? which church fathers talked about this. These memory techniques can be used for that kind of thing. But the last memory book I wrote was called Memorize the Mass, that it applies these techniques to the parts of the rites and the order of the Mass so we can know the Mass better. And I'll just say I, was, I wrote that book because it was a very fascinating email. An Air Force pilot emailed me asking how to memorize the parts of the Mass when he heard the story of Admiral Jeremiah Denton, who was a POW in Vietnam for more than seven years in the 60s in early 70s. And it said part of the way he survived years of isolation and torture was that he went through the mass in his head every day. You know, it stabilized him. I later learned there was a, a marinal bishop, James Walsh, who also mentally repeated the mass and the rosary when he was held captive by communists. So just this idea that it's so much that we might not think to really deeply memorize, like the very structure of the mass, you know, you know can be a wonderful thing that can lead us into a, a deeper love and appreciation for it, whether or not we ever find ourselves, you know, confined by communists. There's a homeschooling mom. Her name is Cindy Rollins, and she kind of was started this morning time movement. And one of the things that she likes to say is she had her kids memorize these poems and these great works 
because she wanted them to have something in their head for when they were imprisoned and the rats were eating their toes and, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's a history of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So they would, you know, they would have something in there to call upon for strength. And so you're saying exactly the same thing. Well, your book focuses mainly on applying the memory mansion technique to church teachings. And then you mentioned earlier biology. So we could use this for any kind of academic information we want to learn too, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Give you one real life example. There's a priest a few years ago who demonstrated to his, to the parishioners that he named off all of our presidents in order. Okay. Uh, he read Memorize the Faith, he used that technique for the U.S. presidents. And, and people started to clap and he said, hold on, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he called up this 11-year-old boy who then recited the names of, of all the 265 at that time popes in order because he had used this technique. He called me and worked with me and we elaborated these memory rooms to, to incorporate that much information. So, so yeah, it can be used for almost anything and by people of a vast uh, you know, range of ages. This boy who memorized the popes was 10 years old when he first contacted me and was 11 years old a few months later when he'd done that. But, but basically, it can be used for almost any information. Myself, years ago, when I studied for the psychology licensure exam, I used it to memorize things like the, the nine symptoms that characterize major depression. I've had other people tell me they've used it for them to help them memorize key things for the, the GREs, the graduate record exams, uh, the bar exams for lawyers have contacted me. Some of the research on these methods were also used in learning foreign language vocabulary. They tend to be very powerful when you form these images that sound like the new word you want to remember, but then also convey the meaning. So for almost anything you have to memorize, there's probably a way to adapt these techniques. Okay. I wanted to stop you right there. So could you give me an example of whatever foreign language you're most proficient in, whether that be Latin or Spanish or Italian or whatever? Could you give me an example of a vocabulary word and how you would do that? Sure. I'll give you a real simple one here from, from French. French word for book, you know, being livre, L-I-V-R-E. So for the image, if you're trying to remember that, what's the French word for book? It's livre. Okay. Imagine out in your front yard, picture an actual tree you have there, someone in your yard, but in, instead of normal leaves, it's growing books. It's just covered with these books that are growing out from the branches. So if you have that image of a tree and it's got the leaves there, and the leaves remind you of the French livre, but instead of leaves, you see books. Now you also have the meaning. So you have that connection there, the sound of leave for livre and the image of the books for what it actually means. And you can do that, you know, for virtually any vocabulary word in, in any language. Okay, good. Interesting. But I do want to point out to everybody that would not be done in isolation. You would not just imagine a tree with leaves, you know, that it would be done as part of this memory palace location that we talked about earlier. So maybe as we're memorizing our French vocabulary, when we get to the third step in our doorway, we turn and look out that glass pane window and we see that tree with the leaves. Yes, yes. You know, for, for anything like just, just a few months ago, a coworker had uh, a second grader who had to learn 40 new vocabulary words. And for young kids, you know, new vocabulary words are almost like a foreign language because they don't know them yet. And she just went through their own apartment and set up these locations and they created these images for every word. And her son memorized all 40. The teacher said this is the first time anyone ever did this on the first try. So yeah, they can be used, you know, they can be powerful tools if you take the time to master the technique and, and use them as a, as a whole. Because we're, we're got a variety of these memory techniques. And sometimes they can be combined and used together. Uh, for example, I, I mentioned memorizing 50-digit numbers. And by doing that, I use a memory code 
that turns those numbers into consonant sounds. So I then build words out of those, those random digits. So, so like when I memorize 50 digits, I really memorize 25 simple words that I then place on those locations, which I know better than the back of my hand. So, so there's many ways that if we know these different memory techniques, they can really transform any task of memory and make them far easier. Okay. And so could it be used for math facts? Because, you know, I've got <laughs> some kids that age. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, for certain things, it could you know, take a little more, be more challenging in the particular adaptations. So that math itself is not thinking something I've done great adaptations for, more like uh, memorizing numbers themselves for, for various reasons, if you have to know phone numbers and things like that. But, uh, but with a little adaptation, it sure could be. I know one man who, who reviewed uh, my book said that it was very helpful to him in learning new pieces on the trumpet. So there have also been these techniques that have been adapted to learning music. So again, it can apply to almost anything. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you mentioned using it a couple of different times with children. So most of my listeners are homeschoolers almost exclusively, and it, we would be using it with children. Is there anything special to keep in mind if you're trying to introduce this method with younger kids? That's a great, great question. Uh, my master's thesis research that looked at all this research on this, I kind of found out that in my conclusion was that almost the ideal time to do this is about fifth or sixth grade, 10 or 11 years of age, because the kids are developing those reasoning abilities where they can do this, but they're not likely to be older and grow more skeptical. You know, they're going to be more, more open to it. So usually at that age, the kids can master these techniques. But I will say some studies showed, for example, second graders trained in these techniques were able to outperform fifth graders who weren't. But for the younger the child, the more you need external concrete aids. For example, you know, we're doing all this, uh, you know, through sound. The book itself is illustrated, you know, so you would see pictures of these rooms. Also, some of the images are illustrated. So basically, the younger the child, the more structure you give them. You show them actual pictures or allow them to draw pictures. And the older the child becomes, the more they're going to be able to do this entirely within their own heads. And for me, like I said, it seemed like the primo age, the, the choice age was maybe around 10, 11, 12 years or so. Okay. So it's kind of like with almost anything, back to the math example again, the younger the child, the more concrete it needs to be. And the older they get, the more abstract you can make it. Exactly. When psychologists like Jean Piaget talked about the different reasoning abilities that, that develop with age, his higher stage of the formal operations typically start maybe around age 11 or so. So no, it illustrates again that these Memory techniques really are reasoning techniques because you have to have that reasoning capacity to really be able to fully utilize them. So in teaching a younger child, say a first or a second grader, the technique, would it be helpful to actually walk through your house? Uh, yes. Go ahead. Exactly. You've got it there. You make it more concrete. You actually walk through a house so they can see the front door. They have that concrete you know, experiential memory. So the more concrete, the better. Something else to keep in mind with younger kids is, you know, I talked about seven plus or minus two. You know, for how much, how many pieces of information we can hold at one time, we tend to hit that seven around 12 or 13, the early teens. So younger kids can't hold as much at once. So you'd also want, you know, not to overload them and do fewer items the, the younger the child is, fewer items at, at one time. So break that 10 commandments up into five and five and, you know, internalize the first five through repetition for a few days. And then when you think they have that, move on and add the second five. Yes, that's right. That's right. And then by the time a person is an adult, sometimes it's, it's amazing. I, had, I saw one reviewer said in two 45-minute sessions, they were able to memorize you know, all the books in both the Old and the New Testament using these techniques. So you know, kind of the more practice we are and when our brains are fully mature, you know, we can really go to town with these. But for, for people, though, who would have learned these techniques when they were children, 
I think it's kind of, you know, intriguing to think what they might be able to, to perform if they, you know, use these throughout their lives. Like myself, I said, I found these techniques in my late teens and have found them very, very beneficial throughout my life. So the more you use them, the better you get at them. Yes, exactly. It's like, you know, in our, in our faith, we know that grace perfects nature with the use of these techniques, you know, practice perfects nature. Awesome. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I just want to remind everybody that the book is Memorize the Faith. And that's the first one. There's a couple more after that. And do you have somewhere that people can find you online? Sure. My own website is uh, drvost.com. That's just D-R-V-O-S-T.com. My books are all shown there. I don't sell them myself, but but I link to sellers. And there's also a comment box. If people like to comment or ask me a question, they can feel free to contact me through that. So drvost.com, D-R-V-O-S-T.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today. This was absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks. The questions were great. It was really my uh, pleasure, Pam. Thank you. And there you have it. Now, if you would like information on any of the resources or books that Dr. Vost and I talked about today, including his own books, you can find links to those in the show notes for this episode. And those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB24. The basket bonus for today's episode is a memory work tracker for you and your family. We have this lovely printable Your Morning Basket Memory Work Tracker that you can print out and slip right into your morning time binder to keep track of all of the things that you've memorized. We will be back again in another couple of weeks with another fun interview. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day.